Welcome to Frontier 3, presented by PatSnap. In this 20-episode podcast series, we'll be unpacking the innovation ecosystem of Web3. From tokenized physical goods to the digital assets and smart contracts that will build the metaverse, Web3 is one of the biggest technological and socioeconomic paradigm shifts in history. Join PatSnap's co-founder, Ray Chohan, for a fascinating deep dive into how Web3 will fundamentally change how we live, work, and play. Welcome to Frontier 3. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode 10 of Frontier 3, presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, our host, Ray Chohan, sits down with Mezba Sabur, who's the founder of Circularize. Mezba is on a mission to make global supply chains more transparent to enable circularity. Circularize facilitates a shift to a circular economy by digitizing and tracing materials across complex supply chains on a public blockchain without risking confidentiality. Mezba and his co-founders started Circularize in 2016 after visiting a number of recyclers in the Netherlands. Before that, they didn't know that while products are sent to recycling plants, many resources end up being incinerated or even worse, put in landfills. The reason is simple. Recyclers don't want what's inside all these products. What materials have been used? What is their origin? Are they hazardous? All these questions were left unanswered, and that's why they started Circularize, to become the information bridge for a circular economy. We hope you enjoy today's episode with Ray and Mezba. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by PatSnap. Learn how to unlock your limitless innovation potential with connected innovation intelligence. CII is an AI-powered technology that comes through millions of disparate data points, segments them by industry and relevance, and weaves the insights together to create a meaningful narrative. The result? A holistic 360-degree market view where you can easily spot risks, identify opportunities, and accelerate the pace of innovation. We created the definitive guide to connected innovation intelligence to give you an in-depth understanding of how CII can help your business innovate better. If you want to grab a copy of this, head over to patsnap.com or click the link in the description of this podcast to get it today. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Mespa, welcome to Frontier Free. Really excited to have you on the show today. And yeah, would love to kick off with your background because as I touched upon um, off air, Circularize really stood out to me because we've been trying to keep a close eye out on enterprise software businesses, which have that Web3 component. And you guys are a brilliant example of that. So Mezbar, I would love to kick off with just the original Genesis story, your professional background, your personal journey, and how you came to starting your own business. Perfect. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Ray. Um, and just to kind of give you a background. So um, I, uh, I was born in Afghanistan um, in 1992 and uh, lived there for a couple of years. And I was very little, uh, obviously, uh, due to the war and then the conflict, I moved to the Netherlands uh, when I was only seven. And that's where I um, kind of spent the rest of my life, never been, been back. Um, and I was always interested in engineering and, and, and in all kinds of different uh, 
mathematical problems as well as uh, architecture and, and design. Um, and I decided to do industrial design as a bachelor. So that was uh, more than a decade ago now where I uh, met Jordi, who's my co-founder now. Uh, like within like the first couple of weeks, we went to the Chamber of Commerce because Jordi had a great idea. We're like, oh, awesome. Let's <laughs> just start a company. Um, so we've been kind of entrepreneurs for more than a decade now uh, with, with several st startups in the past and, and really loved doing that. And, and while Jordi quickly moved to... Um, do an MBA, I really fell in love with industrial design. And uh, I, I'm not sure how, how much you know about uh, a bachelor program, but there is this this big part called a minor, which is, uh, you know, like six months or so a program that mm -hmm. you can choose yourself as a student. So I kind of was late in enrolling and all the nice stuff that that everybody was uh, was, was picking and the popular stuff was, uh, was kind of uh, gone. And I uh, had to kind of choose from whatever was left. And one of these courses was called Sustainable Design Engineering. And it was a course, uh, six months together with aerospace engineering and then to kind of teach engineers how to incorporate sustainability and, and a different way of thinking into their day-to-day -day activities. And that's where I met some professors who are now on our board uh, and they were introducing the idea of a circular economy and i was like totally sold with, within a couple of weeks and i was like this is this is way more important and interesting um, than simple uh, industrial design and back then that faculty was just a couple of people uh with the, so the department of circularity and sustainability was just a couple of people within the faculty um and now it's like a full department with like lots of PhD students and it's really, really grown in the past couple of years. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of how it started. So I, I, I decided to focus on circular economy and, and kind of understand the problem as much as I can. And in 2016, we kicked off Circularize uh, from kind of the, the results of my master's uh, thesis, uh, which identified uh, the problem of a lack of transparency, trust, traceability in global supply chains, which is prohibiting a move towards a circular economy um, and yeah that's has been our mission all along to enable that uh, had very little affinity with blockchain and web3 back then but as you can imagine this is uh, you know a great tool to solve traceability and transparency and introduce trust where it is lacking um, so yeah we became kind of experts in that area as, as we got, uh, went into that journey and, and tried to learn as much as we can and uh, yeah, that's it in a nutshell, actually. And Mesbal, what is the circular economy? Because there'll be many of our audience listeners who might have heard about that term from a kind of 100,000 foot overview. But in a nutshell, what is the promise of a circular economy? So the easiest way for me to think about it is, is kind of understanding the current economy and we just often refer to as the linear economy. So linear means that we are extracting resources from the planet all kinds of materials, raw materials, and what have you to make our products. Let's just focus on a simple example, a smartphone, right? There is a lot of different uh, elements and, and, and uh, materials that go into that. So most of that are uh, extracted from the planet, made into different parts and components, and, and eventually the final phone. And over 90% of the cases, that phone will never make it back into the economy after a first life cycle, right? So the idea of a circular economy is that we shouldn't design systems that always end up, you know, either in landfill or incineration at some point. 
that should be prevented at all costs. That's kind of leaking from the system, meaning you know, you've, you've got all these great resources, but landfill or incineration means you, you lose the resources. So what we need to do is design systems to keep those, uh, ideally the whole phone, but at some point that's going to be a, at, a, at a real end of life. And, and then the components and then eventually the raw materials keep looping them back into the economy by you know using refurbishing, reintroducing into the into the system, repairing, um, and as well as recycling uh, methods. So that's that's it in a nutshell to kind of explain circularity to to keep these these materials and resources into the economy as long as possible, which is not only good for the environment but also really on a financial perspective, it makes sense. But it is very very complicated because the world supply chain hasn't really been designed for this at all and. That means there's all kinds of challenges when it comes to collaboration within these supply chains, as well as uh, data sharing. Because you know, most of the time, when it, once a material or a part or a final product is manufactured and it's been shipped to the next body in a chain, all that data is lost. There is no like it's kind of gets stripped from all that data, um, and you do need that to make these circularity uh, decisions and activities happen uh, properly. Well, your timing is absolutely perfect, Mesbar, isn't it? In terms of You've got this key ESG journey that we're all on, mm-hmm. thankfully, and that's picking up pace, touch wood. And then at the moment, really unique, unprecedented supply chain challenges. So it's the perfect cocktail, isn't it, for you guys being a solution, tackling some of these problems. But but just taking a moment to pause. So the current state, is it fair to say it's very much monolithic? linear economy because that's the legacy that's where we've been entrenched in the past looking forward now into this decade what are some of the big things that need to change at ground zero to enable a circular economy and out of a hundred how far are we along to that circular economy promise because it sounds amazing right and it sounds like the right thing to do from a environment standpoint from an economic standpoint it makes perfect sense so just for our audience to understand those two dimensions what are the big hairy problems we need to solve first and then how far along are we as we sit here in in march 2022 yeah these are a lot of important questions and and i I wish i had all the answers but but just to kind of unpack that i think there is a a number of different pillars which the circular economy concept is kind of relying on. And one of these is transparency and traceability and digital tools, which is you know what we're working on. But there's a whole different you know uh, different pillars as well that has nothing to do with this, but 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 they're much more around uh, product design and consumer acceptance and business models. Um, and and these are all like fields that are under heavy development, and we have seen some great examples. But I don't think we have had such you know a great adoption at the scale that we, we can say you know we've got we've got these these pillars solved we, we don't have all the answers when it comes to digital uh, capabilities and digital enabling technologies we don't have all the answers when it comes to business models because uh, yeah we, we we see a lot of these these examples where uh, you're moving to um, 
what is called a product service system where you you sell products uh, by uh, their usage instead of by, by the actual product. So there is there's a company uh, that sells washing machines and and you get the washing machine uh, for free essentially. You get you get to, to borrow it almost, um, but you're paying per cycle, right? And and that means that the ownership is still with the company and they are incentivized to keep that product as long you know into the economy as possible build something that can last for for ages as opposed to something that they you know don't really care about if they would have been selling the products um and then there's a whole realm of product design like how do you make something that is uh, easy to repair how, like if you look at a smartphone there is this strong trade off right now like we've lost repair possibilities in smartphones right um because they have been glued to each, uh, to, to each other. And it's very, very complicated, if not impossible, for consumers to repair smartphones. But there has been counter-movements with things like Fairphone, where they have a modular smartphone that consumers could take apart and replace um, uh, the screen or a battery within within seconds and minutes. So, yeah, there, I, I think in both of, uh, in all three of these pillars, product design, business models, as well as in digital enabling tools, we are just at the you know, the brink of trying to see and, and uh, getting getting some sort of a clear picture of how it can be solved. But then the next challenge is how do you scale that beyond these, these smaller um, examples and towards like mass adoption. And yeah, some companies like Apple are doing a great job. They're moving towards recycled content in a lot of their products. They have this concept around, uh, you know, uh, product disassembly robots, which is amazing. Uh, but then again, all you know, small scale doesn't happen uh, across the board, and it's not that your current iPhone can be you know stripped away from some of these parts and become a new iPhone yet. That's the dream, but I think I think we're we're, we're not there yet. Um, but and and there's a lot of challenges. There's a whole different area that I've even touched upon, which is to do with regulatory aspects around you know how do, how can regulation play a role, standardize things, uh, specifically in a digital realm where there is a lot of different solutions, different markets, uh, but there's also a lot of what I refer to as like cross-contamination between industries where if you have a smartphone and that, you know, that contains chemicals and that contains uh, metals, et cetera, and then you start to build something that could work for these areas and then you go to these chemical suppliers and then they're like, yeah, but I'm only supplying, you know, a few percent of my materials to the, to the, to the smartphone industry. The majority goes to like the medical equipment or to construction buildings like well, now all of a sudden you introduced such levels of complexity that uh, without standardization, it's kind of imp- impossible to go uh, and, and, and solve these things. So, yeah, there's also a big regulatory aspect. Yeah, it's very, God, it sounds like an end-to-end journey, right? From early stage ideation, R&D, product design, to the business model, to the digital capability. The exciting thing, Mesbar, and hence your excellent growth, looking at things at a macro view out of a, a 10, 15 year outlook, you've got really good tailwinds in the business, right? Because those three vectors you described, let's face it, they are front of mind, right? Maybe not executing on them right now, but most boards at large public companies, emergent businesses know this is coming. So let's start doing something now, or we got to get our act together by at least 2024, 2025, because Really, if I look at what you described there, it's inevitable, right? We have to get there. Absolutely. I mean, we, we are convinced that this is the case. It's, it's really inevitable. We have to get there. And it's really the 
the, the question is rather like who's going to be doing that first and how much are they going to benefit as opposed to laggards, right? And I think a lot of the companies start realizing that and, and putting a lot of resources into all kinds of these areas. Um, and it we have often said like five years ago in 2016, when we started, we were probably too early. Like we, we were doing a lot of education. Um, now with, with a lot of the, the the recent developments in supply supply chains and, and as well as some regulatory aspects that are coming up, there has been such a acceleration happening that we strongly believe that in the coming years, it's going to be too late. The, a lot of these markets will be getting much more saturated and mature. So yeah, it's, it's very, a, a very exciting time. And we do also see like, Sometimes we don't we don't even uh, look them up anymore because we were working with with these uh, larger co- corporates, and virtually all of them they have very strong ambitions that they have made you know statements on publicly, and often you can just find them on their website. And it's just you know kind of funny where we were talking with with some of these employees who aren't really aware of it, and you like kind of screen share, go to their own website. I was like, hey, let me, let me see what your guys are committing to in, in, in 2025, 2030, 2040. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like their eyes uh, open up like, oh, how are we going to realize that? We don't have the right tools and everything. So yeah, there, there, there is a lot of momentum uh, in, in the, in the, that have been building up in the last couple of years. Yeah, because Mezbot, you described a couple of really compelling forcing functions there, right? If I just unpack one, just the business model component where everything is as a service, right? It's Mm -hmm. that kind of SaaS business model is now in the consumer realm in in various factors from my Woot band or my wrist where I didn't pay for the hardware and I just pay my 30 bucks a month for my sub Mm -hmm. to even, I mean, various other products, right? Where we just pay for the sub and Mm -hmm. the hardware is free. So you've got some natural consumer-driven forcing functions already happening in the background, which is great for your business. But Going down to, say, product development or just the digital capability across an enterprise, what are some of the big forcing functions which are picking up pace naturally within the enterprise which are accelerating your business, which which gets you excited in the morning? So uh, I, I think that there's, there's a few. Uh, one, one of them is that, indeed, as you're rightly saying, uh, product service systems and products as a, as a service are, are becoming much more the norm, even within enterprise, whereas, you know, uh, it, it didn't start that way, right? It was all like mainframes and a lot of on-prem. Uh, and now it's getting much more you know, acceptable to do everything as a service. Uh, and it's rightly so, because that, that whole development and, and that field has been maturing so much, and there is a, a lot of proof uh, that, that that these things can work and can operate safely. Um, and then on the other hand, there is also a growing awareness of Web3, even within enterprise, I would say. There is a, a lot of um, movements towards standardizing credentials and identity, etc., using Web3 principles or principles that are not necessarily Web3, but are very close to, to, that, to that philosophy of uh, self-sovereignty um so i think these are very exciting things and and there is a still to be honest like a lot of companies that we work with that have no idea but there is also a smaller group of companies that are really like i wouldn't expect them to be leading um these efforts from a you know large very um international 
corporate perspective, they are really leading in some cases the the Web three adoption within their organizations, which is really amazing and inspiring to see. Uh, whereas we were uh, most of the time under the impression a couple of years ago that you know in the beginning it won't really be fully decentralized because a lot of companies aren't ready for that and then it will be you know uh, managed by 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 others. But we do see very strong interest towards. Uh, from enterprise themselves towards Web3 concepts when it comes to their you know, identity management and, and some of the credentials that they're having. So that is very exciting, as well as auditing schemes and auditing bodies, uh, which kind of issue certificates, etc. There has been also lots of um, interest from that perspective, which is very exciting to see as well. I think um, it's getting more into the uh, you know beyond that level of, of of basic understanding for most people now uh, in this space where initially the question was okay go so okay, what is blockchain <laughs> right <laughs> what is it even like uh, can you explain me uh, the difference between this and, and bitcoin and, and 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 that question has luckily been um, you know rest relevant recently where most companies get get a good understanding of that and they're moving beyond that uh, towards better you know or, or more sophisticated concepts such as uh, credentials okay so, so i just want to pit stop here because this part's fascinating right and this is a big part of frontier freeze mission is unpacking this wonderful world because there's i share your sentiment i think we're getting there and it's exciting but if i just benchmark analyzing things on linkedin in terms of views likes reshares just energy around web3 posts it's there but still not there if you take 10 steps back and look at the wider community on linkedin which is a brilliant community right some amazing mm -hmm. practitioners there who should be working in web3 in my opinion but have not even started their learning journey so just to pause on on your business model so could you describe the very day and the very moment where you're building circularize and it's this i'm guessing back then uh, a classic enterprise software play and you get touched by this wonderful primitive which is going to change the world in the blockchain so could we just kind of turn that day or that week or those months into a 4k definition moment because that would be great for the audience to understand what was your aha moment and why yeah i i, I think it's um it was a lot earlier than you might expect um, because, again, going back to the beginning of the conversation, uh, the problem we identified was, you know, there's a lack of transparency and collaboration and trust in supply chains leading to um, inefficient efforts towards circularity. So then the next kind of step is, all right, how do we enable transparency and data sharing in complex global supply chains? Well, you could do it in a traditional SaaS model and then try to collect all that data and, and have, you know, a great experience for suppliers doing that and figure out incentives uh, for, 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 for all these stakeholders to start doing this. But then inevitably you're creating this, this central data bank of all that data. And without even, you know, going into that area, we asked ourselves, is that something we want to do? Is that something that, you know, companies would even accept that scale, having this central repository of supply chain data, which either is going to be relevant data, and then it's a goldmine, or it's going to be irrelevant data, which we have seen in the past, they exist, and then it doesn't really help anybody, right? So 
that is kind of where we started. And, and, and early on, we were like, okay, we need to have a solution for this. And, and, and obviously, one of the solutions that you can very easily come up with when it comes to a lack of trust is blockchain. You, you can introduce uh, trustless ways of, of handling uh, certain, certain transactions or other data points. However, it still doesn't deal with privacy and confidentiality. And on the contrary, it kind of <laughs> makes the problem even worse because now everything is public. Um, so that is why, you know, you, you could go into different routes. And, and, and this is still like very early days within the first like six to 12 months of the company. We were, we were in this crossroads of, all right, we can either do it on a central way or we could do it on a blockchain way, but then do it all privately and kind of run the whole system and the consortium ourselves. But that really didn't feel right, right? It kind of feels like you're trying to do something, but at the same time, you're taking away the the, the, the most valuable aspect, which is the decentralization and the security aspects and trying to put it in your own, uh, into, into your own control. So then there was this, this whole gap of, right, Blockchain on itself, if it's public, it, it solves the trust issue, but it introduces complexity certain privacy and confidentiality. And it's kind of the other way around with a centralized system where you can solve uh, privacy by essentially storing all the data and encrypting it, but you introduce trust uh, into the system. So... Yeah, that, that wasn't a real solution, right? And and that is where we um, started digging in deeper into the realm of zero knowledge proofs, which was, you know, 2016, 2017, very early days um, of this field. And as we know now, everybody is now looking and investing in this te- technology. And, and when we started looking in how this specific cryptography, zero knowledge proof cryptography, can, can en- enable um, data sharing on a public blockchain, without risking anybody's confidentiality. So this was really kind of the, the the working idea. Like either we do it this way or it's going to have so much compromises, so many compromises that it's not going to be a tool that can be used globally and, and, and achieve the grand mission, which is enabling circularity, right? I mean, the, our mission is not to enable traceability for a couple of companies. That For that, you don't need blockchain. Like <laughs> you just need a, something that... that that, that works and is probably central. But if the mission is enable circularity at a global level, you can't have a tool that doesn't scale beyond just a couple of companies. And in, in order to have something that can, and, and can I mention this earlier, we work with suppliers who supply to virtually any kind of market out there. They're the same materials that they're manufacturing. They go to automotive equipment. Uh, they go to... Uh, electronics, they go to consumer household appliances, it goes to construction, it goes to medical equipment, it goes to, to the fashion industry, <laughs> like imagine the complexities, right? Uh, and you can't have closed private systems running these things uh, unless, you know, the same company is going to install 12 kinds of different traceability tools, each for every other customer that they're serving. Um, so yeah, g- given that mission of, you know, enabling global uh, supply chain circularity, you have to come up with a solution that does not make any compromises on trust nor any compromise on confidentiality. So yeah, that's kind of our, our initial thinking uh, very early on within the first couple of months of the company's existence. Like either we do it this way or we're not going to be able to actually 
fulfill our mission never um so yeah we we kind of took the hard route of investing in 2017 2018 in in zero knowledge proofs and and kind of understanding that making making um, a solution or an architectural solution around that uh, actually resulted in a patent so which is still patent pending right now um on 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 specifically this application and uh, yeah, rolling this out right now in a lot of different industries, primarily focusing on plastics and chemicals. But again, you know, these go into virtually every market. Wow. So Mesbar, you guys were early, right? So late 2016, talking, discussing, huddling as a team. And then 2017, 2018, unpacking zero knowledge proofs, rolling up your sleeves and trying to build when a lot of those primitives, even now with zero knowledge proofs i know that we're getting there with the technology as a good promise but what i'm hearing in the market if you really look underneath the hood and speak to the developers they're like we still got a long way to go is, is that fair to say so actually before we geek out too much on zero knowledge proofs because that can sometimes scare our audience what are what is because zero knowledge proofs when i quickly understood them i was like holy shit this is going to change everything it's yeah, going to be massive, I, but I'd, I want to pass the ball to you. What I had the exact same knowledge? reaction. Like I had the exact same reaction. The first time you hear about it, it's like, wow. holy, like this is going to change everything. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's important to understand that this is a technology that is probably going to change the face of any kind of matter that, that, that touches privacy and confidentiality. Um, not just supply chain has like it says applications way beyond supply chain and and, and enterprise uh, use cases. So the best way I, I really tend to think about it from a very like simple analogy perspective is like imagine you have a a, a person who wants to buy alcohol, and right now the thing that we do is we kind of force that person to show their identity which reveals a lot of data, right? That reveals their uh, birthday, birth, uh, place, it reveals their uh, social security number and, and depends on how, how the ID is, is made and all, all kinds of different uh, aspects that might totally be irrelevant for that exchange of proving, you know, that you're of a certain age to be able to buy alcohol. But that's the, the kind of the best thing we have. Um, another solution could be to centralize it, like have some sort of a central authority always in the middle, but that's also very impractical, right? So then you get this realm of zero knowledge proofs, which kind of introduces a very paradoxical solution saying, what if you could prove that you're of a certain age without showing your age? Or kind of the, the, the name zero knowledge proof is coming from? How do you prove something without revealing any knowledge about that, uh, that, that proof? And on the first sight, it becomes, it's almost like, oh, what, what do you mean? How, how, do you, how, how can you know something without having, like, how can you prove something without having knowledge? It's almost like it's a, a paradox. However, it, it, it seems to be the case with zero knowledge proofs that this is definitely possible. It's actually, if you look at, if you look at the technology from, from a very first principle perspective, it's very simple. It relies on, on, on game theory and, and, and uh, probability. The way it works is that you can prove something with a mathematical proof without revealing the, 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 the uh, secret behind it. And in the case of the, the age without call, you could prove that your birthday is 
of a certain characteristic, meaning it's beyond like a certain date or uh, after a, a certain moment, without revealing the actual date, you just do mathematical calculations and then a, a proof of exchange between the two parties. And and by doing that over and over again, you can prove it. So one, one of the easiest ways to ex explain this, and that analogy has some, some shortcomings, but it works, is that uh, you can explain it with the game Where's Waldo. Have you ever like um, uh, seen this game? There's like the, the, you've got these pictures with all kinds of different little characters on it. And, and somewhere there is a character hidden called Waldo. And, and, and uh, he usually has a um, you know, very uh, distinct outfit. Okay. And imagine... Uh, I've, I've, I've heard of the game, but never personally played it. Yeah, so if, if, you, if you like Google where's Waldo, you get, you get all these pictures. It's like almost like uh, uh, illustrations, like uh, uh, very, very simple uh, detailed illustrations of a random environment where there's like hundreds of characters and one of them somewhere is a very specific guy with a very specific outfit and the game is like almost like a puzzle where you need to figure out where this guy is um so one of the ways to prove that you know the location of this character in this in this in this uh, picture without showing the location is to actually take that picture put it behind a black sheet of paper and just cut out the location, the, just cut out the, the, the Waldo's character. Like, take that picture where he is, put it behind a blank black sheet of paper, and cut out this location. So by doing that, you can show somebody, like, look, I know where Waldo is because I just like literally put his, uh, his picture behind this black sheet of paper and cut out his, his, his silhouette. But you don't reveal the location, do you? Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. that that's a very simple analogy of proving of, that you know something without showing the exact secrets to the thing that you know. In this case, the location of Waldo in a in a very complex picture of hundreds of characters. Um, so that's a probably like very long way of saying it is possible to prove something without revealing the secrets, and that has been kind of a, a new whole frontier in cryptography that is exploring, all right, how can we then uh, implement this in, in practical levels where you don't have to uh, give away anything as a, as a consumer or as a business uh, without proving something about, that, uh, about yourself or about the business. And in our case, in supply chains, it's often around uh, supply chain data, transactional data, um, material composition data, um, and all kinds of, you know, potentially very sensitive information points. How can you prove some of these characteristics, potentially that, you know, prove that your product has been made from recycled content or proving that your product adheres to certain uh, regulatory aspects and doesn't contain harmful chemicals without showing the actual chemical composition or without showing the actual uh, full history of that product's um, manufacturing? Yeah, so, I mean, thanks for that context, Mesbar, because I'm, when I first understood that primitive within cryptography, I was like, wow, this is going to unlock the zero knowledge proof economy. It's going to be a whole sector in itself, right? Because the use cases are endless. And I think that's going to be so powerful for our audience just to initially get their arms around this and, and kickstart their research on YouTube. I recommend everyone just, I think AZ16 do some a bunch of presentations, right? Oh yeah, uh, on explaining that kind of just what zero knowledge proofs are. So, so, so that's fascinating. So going back to 
your specific use case. And now looking at Utopia, right? We're three, four years out. You now have gone through that learning journey or educating journey with your customers across various industries. Like what does good and great look like for customers? Because when you describe the supply chain, I can imagine you might have a smart phone OEM saying, this all sounds great, Mesbar and team, but I don't want my competition knowing X, Y, and Z in my supply chain because that's my competitive moat, right? Like I, we spent years building those relationships and getting that momentum. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to share that publicly, right? That's an obvious one, right? And that probably applies across all industries, but this holy grail of zero knowledge proofs and abstracting out an ESG statement, uh, a regulatory statement, something which invites other people to come into their ecosystem because they can offer X uh, optimization in a smart, ch- in a supply chain. I, this all makes sense to me. I can see how this would be an absolute, an amazing vacuum for a big company to build on their business in terms of new revenue, hit certain goals in terms of ESG, build their brand. I mean, it, it, dude, this ticks so many boxes. It's crystal clear. Like I love what you guys are doing there. It's crystal clear in my mind, but where are we today in the reality? If you go to a customer, so I can see you've got amazing automotive manufacturers, some, some amazing brands as customers. Where are we today on, on that blockchain capability on actually them using zero knowledge proof capability? Are are they actually using it today in a meaningful way where they can express their entire supply chain and only abstract out key uh, promises or or key bits of data, which allows them to hit their ESG targets, their supply chain economic targets, their business development targets. Are are, are we there now? So we're there yet. We are there already in, certain closed cases we're okay. not there yet as a generic model that is easily scalable across a full portfolio of like esg claims uh, as well as a very you know complex multi-tier continuous end-to-end traceability systems i think that is really the challenge of of the the, the coming years to scale that towards that that that, that level today we can do it it is often, however, um, tied down to simple, more simple claims, as well as uh, relatively simple, or, or not necessarily simple, but like short uh, pilot-based supply chains. We're not there yet at a level where we're working with a, with a with a company like Apple and all of their suppliers, which can be thousands, right? So. That is really the challenge where we were, that we're facing in, in the coming years to really scale these operations to that level. And we're learning a, a ton of stuff uh, working with, with suppliers right now um, in, in closer environments where we're talking about a couple of dozen suppliers instead of thousand suppliers. And, and that is really where, uh, where, 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 where we're at right now, as well as, uh, and, this, and, and we kind of touched upon this, zero-knowledge proof technologies are really, really recent, even though we started thinking about them in 2017 uh, or, or, or even 2016, they were not at a level of you know production-capable systems. And there are some today that are getting to that level. And, 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 and that is also you know, one of the, the, the limiting factors in, in getting this towards 
you know, large scale deployed uh, env environments because in a lot of these pieces are now coming together. Uh, the, the demand and, and, and interest from, from suppliers as well as the technology getting to a mature level. So, yeah, I think in the, the coming 12 to 24 months are going to be crucial in, in terms of scaling these, these smaller scale, couple of dozen supply chain um, examples and use cases to like hundreds and even thousands of suppliers being connected into these uh, environments. And, and, and then it's going to be amazing to see the level of you know, zero knowledge proofs OEMs can do then uh, on th on data from thousands of suppliers, um, and then and then you know build that into their reporting as well. So there is a lot a lot of different things that we can do, and it's really uh, going to be extremely exciting because yeah, th th this is like one part of it, but like th there is so much automation, and and that's kind of been the vision from the company very early on. Like without a proper infrastructure to share data and supply chains, we won't be able to unlock a lot of the circularity activities. And that is, you know, now that that ability to share data in a supply chain is getting closer, it's becoming a reality, we can already start like dreaming about what this can unlock for circularity activities. Like imagine products having their own uh, unique NFT almost that can be used for by OEMs and brands and suppliers to, to for take-back schemes and put them back into the economy um, and, and, and have a level of traceability and, and, and uh, sharing data that is like almost impossible to like even dream about a couple of years ago. So I think that's really where it's going to be super exciting, where you might even get offers from suppliers in the near future. Uh, they wanted to buy back your old products and 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 you know that all that kind of stuff can only be enabled by you know the, the right level of traceability and confidentiality wow god you took me down a different rabbit hole there now mesbar when you talked about zero knowledge proof converging with an nft capability right so if i've used said product for say my peloton for example i've used it for three mm. years but then they ping me and say look um, here's a give back scheme and you get rewarded Ray with X, Y, and Z to participate as a customer. You now even invite the consumers to participate in the circular economy, right? So the incentive yeah. structure is literally end to end. Absolutely. And not, not just consumers, but also recycling companies where mm -hmm. you might not um, be able to reach consumers in all levels, but in some uh, products it might, you know, naturally rent up at, at uh, end-of-life collection centers. And then upon entry, there is a more like a, a centralized way of, of scanning these end-of-life products. And instead of them all being uh, processed in, in, in the same way right now, at a, like a municipality level, you might have bids from, from all kinds of suppliers all around the world, depending on supply and demand, start extracting these resources back. And you know, we're, we're talking with a lot of suppliers who are concerned about their future feedstock. They want to start making everything that they manufacture traceable today so they can, in the future, put, take their own products back and, and put that back into the economy and, and recycle them uh, and, and make new uh, materials from their own materials. But for that, they need to know that it's been their material. They need to know the quality. They need to, they need to have, that, have them traceable and identified at the end of life so they can... Uh, you know, put them back into their own into their own operations. Yeah, this makes sense because what you described there, 
optimizes a vertical integration play, kind of tops that up, but also some folks who can't vertically integrate because they just can't, mm-hmm. that gives them this additional piece of value as well to just say, optimize the economics and optimize their outcome. So God, it, it's fascinating, Mesbar, how far we can we can go with this. But what, one other thing I was keen to unpack, because now our audience will look at this, right? So you described earlier that the challenges uh, one vector of the challenge was hearts and minds within the customer base, because at the moment you mentioned they they are on board, but they're using very small pointed use cases, which is great for now because you're just landing and then hopefully you'll expand. And then there's a second part, which is just a pure technology problem. We're not there with the zero knowledge proof capability and some of it isn't kind of production ready or, or scalable. In in a pie graph form, form factor, how would you split that versus hearts and minds in the customer base? And a technology problem. What's a split right now as we stand? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I, I would say technology is less of a barrier. It's it's probably like anything between like 20, 20 to thirty percent of technology, and the remainder is is not not necessarily the hearts and minds of customers. I think that the the hearts and the minds are probably at the right place. It's much more having their uh, guiding them in a way that it makes this uh, digestible, right? I think it's it's there is a, a a gap that is in user experience. Like if 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 you imagine yourself as somebody working in a big corporate uh, that's you know has tens of thousands of employees hundreds of 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 uh, manufacturing facilities around the world and 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 thousands of SKUs that all need tracking and, and thousands of suppliers that need to be connected hundreds of customers that need to be connected and you're tasked with something like this like it's very easy to become extremely overwhelmed because ESGs like <laughs> that that whole portfolio is like there are so many different elements to it um and I think that is probably the the majority of that pie. It's like there, there it, it, it's it's very easy to get overwhelmed, and it's very hard to have a a user experience from okay, this is a problem we need to solve it to all right, this is the exact way to solve it for us because it's such a complex, broad problem. Just uh, traceability in general, enabling all kinds of activities around. Uh, carbon emissions and, and, and ESG goals. So I think that is probably the, the biggest portion of the pie where the, their hearts and minds are probably just a few percent uh, and, and the, the technology as well. The majority of it will be yeah, ma- making the technology so easy and accessible that you don't need experts and, and super early pioneers who are willing to you know dive into the rabbit hole and understand everything themselves. Because that's not going to scale. You really need a technology that is easily digestible, uh, abstract away all the unnecessary things, and then speak to the hearts and minds of the early majority and, and, and like the, the larger uh, groups out there who are interested in doing so, but they're not. They're not the group who's gonna, you know, watch YouTube videos or zero knowledge proofs and try to understand that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the early pioneers, and and. You know, we, we really need to get get serious steps towards also um, 
catering to to the wider groups. Yeah, in a way, I'm I'm, I'm kind of maybe maybe you're already doing this now, and you and your team, but I'm just maybe visualizing a year out from now, or even this year, where you get on a a screen share demo with the economic buyer. Uh, prior to that call, they were able to share some data with the team with an NDA, so you can quickly demonstrate zero knowledge proofs without going too deep and go, here you go, we've abstracted out all of the data which you don't want the world to know, but this is how it looks like in a graphical output. And if if I look at what you guys are doing, there's a great business, and I'm, maybe you can correct me from, but there could be a day where you could be, uh, there's a great business called Dune Analytics, where a lot of the dashboards are public, right? So they could one day be just an open public marketplace where a company is expressing their supply chain, ticking certain boxes. And then, then that invites the entire world from a B2B standpoint to go, actually, oh, I should be working with those guys. I can optimize that part. And that head of supply chain doesn't even know it. This is a window into their world without knowing the knowledge, but just mm-hmm. knowing the abstracted piece out. So the optimization capability is huge right because you don't know what you don't know right so mm-hmm. if i look at what dune have done they're just inviting people to look at those dashboards this is more from a capital allocation standpoint but the concept could be expressed for what you guys are doing so yeah it's um well you guys could build something really special here i think it's a a, a fascinating business and so, so at the moment what is your business model for our audience is it a SaaS type business model where someone would just subscribe for a year and pay in annual upfront payment like software. What, what does it look like? Uh, yes. Yeah, so our, our, our traditional business model has been very, very similar to what you just described. It's a, it's a uh, SaaS model where there was a, a, a fee per month that is being uh, charged for, for, for uh, companies to start using our system. We do have some, very exciting new stuff that is upcoming, which I can't publicly disclose yet, unfortunately. Sure. Um, but it is going to be very exciting to see what new upcoming technologies are going to enable us to do here. So I, th- I think at the, end, at the end of the day, it's it's all boils down to whether traceability and transparency and, and the data that, that then makes something traceable and transparent, whether that holds any value. If it doesn't, then there is no real business, right? But if it is, if there is somebody in that supply chain looking for that data and, 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 and interested in that data, I think that's where the business model is at, right? So, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to start experimenting with a lot of different uh, models as well in the, in the coming uh, months uh, as, uh, you know, next to our traditional model where there is a, you know, because that also is easy to explain to enterprise. It's just uh, a model where they're paying a fee to access yep. the system per month yeah yeah and just say look don't worry about the blockchain don't worry about zero knowledge exactly proof. exactly it's software the rest don't <laughs> worry about it you i think kevin o'leary one of my favorite capital allocators and he's always doing great sound bites on youtube and now linkedin he, he just goes it's software the blockchain is software usdc is software like it works on software rails i think that's probably just a really thoughtful way of just cutting through all the the journey, learning journey, because most buyers in enterprises go, okay, I get that. It's software. It's just a, a version exactly. of software. So I think, I think that way of, of working it. So, so obviously you're now using zero knowledge proofs, the blockchain primitive. Where do you think you'll be in two years time in terms of your web three, web three effect within the business? Will it, will it 
evolve to NFTs, tokenizing, certain dashboards? Where, where are you guys heading, do you think? I, I think uh, in, in a one to two year time frame, what we also want to, because to be fully frank, there is a lot of centralization in, in what we do, right? Even though we do use uh, blockchain, we're actually running a lot of our, of our stuff on public mainnet Ethereum. So we try to get us as, as decentralized as possible, but there's always, you know, some uh, weak link somewhere. And, and oftentimes that comes down to um, wallet management and that kind of stuff where it's still centralized and, and, and kind of breaks the whole decentralization aspect. Um, so I think that is really in a, in a one to two year time frame our, our mission to become as decentralized as possible, at least for those customers who are willing and capable of running the whole thing themselves without any kind of interference from us. Um, and then if you look at maybe five to 10 year uh, timeframes, I think there is a really interesting development where, you know, there's this concept in blockchain where it says, uh, where everybody's like talking about garbage in, garbage out, right? Especially in supply chain, if you're putting, feeding the day, the, the, the blockchain and, and the system with a lot of garbage, that's what you're going to, you know, be storing permanently and temper proof and, and um, immutably. Uh, so that's what we'll also get out of it. So it, that's a, it's, a, it's a different way of saying quality data input is really important. And right now, in all use cases that I've seen so far, that data input relies on third-party certifications, auditorings, and, and third-party attestations, right? So I think in a, in a five to 10-year time frame, we're going to see some sort of a fusion between Web3 blockchain enabled tracking databases essentially mm. and Web3 enabled IoT devices. So imagine a manufacturing facility that is enabled with all kinds of IoT hardware and sensors which report directly to the blockchain. Meaning that level that the the, the 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 quality of the data input is extremely high because it's coming directly from like a machine to the blockchain and it can be fully signed and sealed and and independent of human input after it's been installed. Meaning you could get rid of human input in certain cases completely, and there is no more garbage in. There's just quality data. In. Uh, in those cases, I think that is something that I'm excited about in a, like the, the long-term vision of five plus years. Yeah, that machine-to-machine flow is one of the holy grails, right? Because when it comes to data quality, coverage, governance, yeah, it's an untouchable business model. That's why uh, we've had the team from Helium on the pod, which will be coming out soon. I love what they're doing around connectivity and connecting manufacturing devices at the moment i can see them only scaling and probably converging with what you guys are doing right so you've got all these great businesses like yours and helium all one day partnering together and it's kind of like a venn diagram in terms of transferring value so so mesbot i mean today's been brilliant i mean we could probably go on for hours in terms of buildings (laughs) but i just want to say massive congrats uh you've got a fascinating story and i'd love to check in for part two maybe near christmas time see how far you have come uh, we're big fans of the business, so um, hope that would be great. Part two. Thanks again, Ray, for having me. Nice great. one, Take care. Bye bye. Bye.
And there you have it, everyone, for today's episode with Mezba. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We come out every single week with a new episode. If you love today's episode, then share this podcast out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly benefit from listening to today's podcast with Mezba. Again, for listening to today's episode, you can grab Pat Snap's number one best-selling Amazon ebook, The Definitive Guide to Connected Innovation Intelligence, where in this white paper, they explore what CII is, who it's for, and how the world's disruptors are using it to win in hyper-competitive markets. And to download your free copy of this amazing ebook, all you have to do is head over to patsnap.com or there will be a link in the description of this podcast that will take you directly there. Thank you all again so much for tuning in to today's episode of Frontier 3. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.